0: morning, guys. Um, we're gonna be in 1 Peter chapter four this morning, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Uh, turn there, or I guess more accurately scroll there is probably the, the medium we're using. Uh, if you've got one of our blue ones, this is gonna be on page 589, so go ahead and turn right there. Um, while you're turning there, like Josh said, my name's Cody. Um, I am super stoked to be up here. Usually I'm sitting out in the black chairs with you guys and this morning I have this crazy opportunity to like actually stand up here and talk about the things that I have been seeing here in First Peter 4. So this is kind of blowing my mind a little bit, but I'm very excited about it. And um, like Josh said, give me, give me grace if I just like totally derail at any point. I have some people in the audience that are going to do some things, if I cue them, like if it goes completely off the rails. So Carl's gonna come up and do the worm. So if that <laughs> happens, just be ready for it. So, but we're hoping that's not gonna happen. I think we're actually gonna hear from God this morning. So 1 Peter chapter four, um, we're actually gonna read the whole thing, but we're just gonna be jumping around a little bit. So I'll try and guide us through that as best I can. Obviously, starting in verse one, so straight from the top. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We're going to jump down to seven at that point. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Jumping down to 12, at that point, we're gonna kill the remainder of the text. It's probably not a good language for this, but anyway, 12. (laughs) Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And here's the last little piece. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So that's our text for this morning. That's where we're going to be. If you've been with us in First Peter so far in this journey we've been going through, um, you have noticed that, P- hopefully you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but I'm gonna tell you, here's, here's what it is. Peter has established this rhythm and this pattern so far as he's been leading his people through this letter where he'll come in and he will speak identity in his people who say, hey, this, this is who you are. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Like if you remember in the first chapter, he he calls them to remember that, hey, you have a imperishable and an undefiled inheritance that is like laid up and waiting for you, that is yours. And then he's gonna move on and he's gonna say, hey, you are the people of God, a priesthood for his name. You are the sons and daughters of God. So he comes and he speaks this identity piece. But then almost immediately from that, he will step into an exhortation. He'll say, hey, because this is true, live like this. Since this is a true fact about yourself, you need to live like this. Here's some things that you need to do. Here's some things that you probably need to stay away from if this is true of you. So that's kind of his ebb and flow constantly in this text that we have seen over and over again. And he's actually going to keep this pattern going this morning in First Peter 4, except he's going to flip it on its head a little bit. He's going to come in first and he's going to say, hey, here is something that I I want you to do. Here's something that I need you as the people of God to take up this way of thinking. And then he's gonna move right into, here's something that you need to be aware of and be watchful of and to get this out of your life, you need to be careful right here. And then at the very end, he's gonna kind of back end it with reminding us who we are and giving us that identity piece. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the ebb and flow this morning. That's kind of the threefold structure of where we're gonna be and... Now we're gonna dig into it. So, all right, first part, what Peter is calling us into. This is in verse one. So look back down as I get there. Uh, verse one, Peter says, "'Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, "'arm yourselves with the same way of thinking.'" So Peter is saying like, hey, when, when you are enduring suffering, when you're in dealing with hard stuff in your life, I want you to arm yourselves with a certain way of thinking. Peter once again picks up this like, same language of warfare that he has actually been using a lot throughout this whole book, if you have paid attention. If you remember in, in chapter one, when Dave came here from the cannery and preached, Dave clues us in that Peter is using the language. He says, hey, gird up the loins of your mind. Kind of an unusual phrase. Is anyone, did anyone gird up their loins this morning? That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, grab your tunic Nobody wears a tunic. So, okay, put your running shoes on, is basically what he's saying. Tie up that tunic around your waist, because this is an active thing that I'm calling you into. And in chapter two, he continues this language, and Josh actually preached on this. He says, hey, my people, abstain from the passions of the flesh, because they wage war against your soul. It's this warfare that they wage against your soul. So Peter thinks that you and I, as the followers of Jesus, are in the midst of a actual, very real battle. Like, that's why he keeps using this language. And as he does this, if you remember, Josh preached on last week, this is not, a warfare in the typical way that we think of it. It's not one involving like swords and guns. When we hear Peter saying this, we don't go grab a sword. It's not that type of warfare. And it's not even a warfare of of our words and our attitudes into the culture. Um, Josh has been really good throughout this whole series of cluing us into uh, this chapter in Ephesians where Paul comes and says, hey, you, your struggle is not with flesh and blood. It is not with people. It's not with flesh and blood, but it is with rulers and powers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil that are actually invisible and unseen. That is your enemy. It's not people. And so that, that's this warfare language. And, and since this is the case. Peter right here wants to show us that the main weapon of grace in the life of this type of warfare in the believer's life is, name, is a new mindset, namely taking up the mindset of Christ. So what's really cool is that this is not a new thing that Peter is just kind of grabbing out of the air and just is using. This is actually a theme that we see woven all the way through the New Testament We're gonna see Paul in Philippians come to his people and say, hey, have this mindset, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, something to be like laid hold of, but he actually emptied himself. So you need to take up that mindset. And in Romans 12, he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right. So it's the same mind, hey, take up this mindset as the people of God. Peter's not just pulling out this new idea. He's actually continuing to take up a call that we see from start to finish in the New Testament. And What's been so cool with this verse for me this week and what has really stuck with me and jumped out, uh, and this might actually be like super, super obvious to you, but it's actually the thing that Peter does not say, almost kind of looking at the inverse of what, what Peter doesn't say. So Peter doesn't come to his people and say, hey, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with a new way of feeling. When something gets difficult in your life, the first thing I want you to do is learn how to feel better about it. I love that that Peter is not first and foremost asking us to change how we feel about any given situation and any given difficulty in our life. And this is really relevant for me because I find myself believing when I'm faced with hardship and difficulty in my own life that God like demands and expects this immediate reaction of just like overflowing, exultant joy and worship in the midst of this, like right off the bat. And to the degree that I like, I'm actually like really, really bad at that. When when hard stuff comes into my life, my gut reaction is not worship and joy. And so when I see that happening, I tend to get into this mindset where I I think that oh this means I'm full of I've got sin, or at the very least I'm like super immature in my faith. Still, maybe you're like that. Maybe you're like that as well. But um, that doesn't seem to be Peter's attitude right here. He comes first and foremost to his people and says when, st- when st- tough stuff comes into your life, I want you to change how you think about it first. And I think very often the feelings can kind of follow suit after that. But the first piece is this line of thinking. So what does it take, look like for us to begin to take up this mindset? I, I don't think we have to look any further down, like than a few lines down here in First Peter before he actually starts to flesh this out. And that's in verse 12. And what has really stuck with me about this this week is, is the similarity between Peter's words right here and Jesus's words at the beginning of, of his teaching in Matthew five where he's given the Beatitudes. Most of us are probably familiar with that. Um, so I've actually, this is really super nerdy and maybe we can do it, maybe it's gonna show up or not, but I did a slide for us. We have been, this thing has been trolling on us so bad today, so we might actually have no slide, but we're gonna keep going anyways. Uh oh, Uh -oh. check this out. This is one of those uh, technical difficulties I was forewarned about. I'm supposed to just roll with these, is what I've been told. Um, But no, for real, it's all good. It was amazing. I worked for many, many hours on it. You don't need to see it. Basically what it is, it was a text that is showing Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and then Peter's words here and showing some of the overlap and the similarity. Maybe it'll pop up eventually in here and then we'll talk about it, but um, I'll just read it to you and we can be listening. Listen to some of the similarities in the language between Jesus' words and Peter's words. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus's words. And then Peter comes in and says it like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Same Similarity right here, but rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, just like Jesus said, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So it makes more sense if you can actually see it. It was colorful, there was color coordination I love color coordination. It's like my favorite thing. But anyway, so we got Jesus' words here, and then effectively here in Peter, Peter echoing Jesus' same sentiment on the same thing about what it looks like to take up this mindset in the midst of suffering. And I wanted to call our attention to three points in particular. Um, the first thing is that Peter says, Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be surprised when it comes upon you. It's like Peter and Jesus are trying to get us to come to grips with the fact that the first step in enduring hardship and trial is to not let its arrival completely derail you, completely lose your footing. Like You need to expect it, be aware that it is on its way for you in some degree at some time, so be aware of it. The the image that I kept getting with this, and maybe this is because my family like just went to the beach like two months ago putting up my brother Will, because he's back there. He is my literal flesh and blood family. Um, you guys are my family in a different category. Um, but the, the image that kept popping into my mind with this was one of like waves at the beach. Like we've all been here, I feel like it's a pretty accessible metaphor. You're you're hanging there, you wanna venture out to the sandbar because you're an adventurous person like that, right? So you're going out, immediately you are met with just wave after wave, this whole like endless onslaught of waves coming at you. Okay, the way I see it, there's three options for you when you've got a wave ahead of you. You can either be an over the wave kind of person any over the waivers? You know, you get what I'm talking about? Like it's coming at you, and you at that moment like high jump vault <laughs> over it. Anyone, do, any over the waivers? Okay, it's got some over the waivers. You can be like me, which is the cooler option, and be an under the waiver. You feel like Michael Phelps, you're cutting through Wilsa under the waiver. If you don't know, this is gonna be one of our reflection questions at the end to dwell on. Like figure out if you're an over or under the waiver. The third option that I see is you, you can just brace or you can see it coming from afar, you can find your footing in the sand and you can brace for it. You can take that full brunt force of that wave and let it break around you. You just keep going, right? So maybe we've got some, that's a through the waiver. You know, it, maybe we've got some through the waivers in here. So those are, that, those are your options. But I guess technically there's a fourth option, which is to be just completely oblivious to the fact that the wave is even coming at you in the first place. Have we experienced that? You guys been hit by a wave when you weren't ready for it in the ocean? It is like the most disorienting thing in the world. So your attention should be here. Waves coming at you, right? Like massively powerful waves come in your direction. But instead it's like back here where your family is chilling at their spot on the beach. You see those two girls walking up. So you look at them, but you don't look at them too long, obviously. (laughs) And then you can do what I do, which is, you find like the high-rise condo that your family happens to be staying in and you start counting out the grid of like the rooms and the levels and try to find your, your room. Is anyone, else? am I the only one that does that? See if Uncle Stu is out there enjoying a beer on the balcony. So it, whatever the case, like whatever your poison is, you are looking back here and you're not looking at it there, and then that wave comes, right? And it just absolutely clobbers into you, and that is such a disorienting experience. You're immediately met with the sheer reality of how powerful the ocean is, right? And it's not a pleasant experience. You're blown back like 25 yards, saltwater up the nose, and the worst part is the sand in every crack and crevice that you didn't even realize you had. And now there's sand there. So that's my, I think this is a helpful image because Peter's effectively saying this, hey, there are trials that are coming for you. The first step to enduring them, expect it, be aware of it, and be braced for when it comes. Don't let it knock you off your feet when it shows up at your door. So that's Peter and Jesus's first exhortation to us. Second thing, that both of them say, which is really cool, both of them say, rejoice, rejoice in the midst of your suffering. At first glance, to me, this can always seem like Peter and Jesus are just like calling us to like think good vibes, happy thoughts, you know, just like that really kind of shallow, like, hey, if, you know, I know it's tough, but like just think positive thoughts and it'll make your situation better. I think there's like actually something to that. I think that can actually change your reality in a lot of ways. But I think what they are calling us into here is something way deeper and way more tangible and physical for us to hold on to. So if you remember in chapter one, Peter was reminding us of that imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept inheritance that we have waiting for us. He's calling us to set our minds on that. And I think this is effectively the same thing, but Peter is just fleshing it out a little bit more. And basically saying, hey, that to the degree that you share in the suffering of Jesus here on earth, like when you and I suffer, it is actually a sharing in Christ's suffering. And that when you do that, like, it's almost like to the degree that you share in his suffering, that much more you will be able to share in his glory when he comes back bodily. Like, I think that's the piece we miss. Like, we think with this, we think, okay, my inheritance is off up in the distance and I'm supposed to like think about that and like set my hope there. But in reality, it's almost like, okay, I'm not supposed to store up earthly cash. I'm supposed to store up like heaven cash, Instead, and think about my heaven cash, and that's supposed to like get me through. But what's so cool is that Peter and Jesus are cluing us into the fact that Jesus is coming back in a very real body to a very real earth. Your inheritance is not something that you die and go off and just float in the clouds with, but it is rather something that is ultimately coming back down to you here on the earth that you and I, like the scripture is so clear that you and I will actually like share in Christ's glory with him when he comes back, that we will like reign with him, reign with him here on the earth. And I I don't know exactly like what the metrics of how that works itself out and how it looks, but I know that it is way more like physical and real than we tend to think of, right? And so the, the call here is when you are suffering, remember this, that this is not the final story, that in the same way that your suffering is very real right now, so your glory will be very real when it does eventually show up. And there's this ability for that thinking to help drive us through the midst of suffering and endure it. So that's the second piece. A third piece that Jesus and Peter, Jesus through Peter, wants us to remember is actually not in the the text that I was gonna have up there, but it's in verse 16. So let's look at that real quick. So Peter has just gotten done saying like, hey, if you're gonna suffer, don't, don't let it be because you killed somebody. Don't let it be because you're like stealing stuff. Like don't suffer for that, that's really dumb. But if you're gonna suffer, you are gonna suffer, And if, it, if you're gonna suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed of that. His words, is, let it, his words are, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in the name Christian. So when I hear this, I hear echoes of, of Hebrews 12 too, where, where the author of Hebrews is, is saying, hey, in the same way that Peter has been calling us to fix our eyes on Jesus, he says, hey, we look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And this is the piece, despising the shame of it, despising the shame of it. I think we we hear that, we don't understand it. I think what it's getting at is this, that there was this inherent shamefulness to what the cross was 2,000 years ago, like nowadays when we think of the cross, we think of Jesus and we think of necklaces most of the time. Like it's just the thing that you wear on your neck. It's like the iconic symbol that gets plastered everywhere. But 2,000 years ago, the cross was a shameful thing. The cross was where criminals were strung up for hours on end and slowly suffocated to death in front of all of the crowds as a punishment and a public humiliation for their crimes. Like that was what the cross was. It was this shameful thing, the cross, and that Jesus, though he knew this and though he was completely innocent, looked at the shame of, the shame of it and says, I don't care. I'm gonna do it. I'm I'm gonna take the cross anyways. Peter's calling us to think in the same way, basically saying in in the same way that 2,000 years ago, the cross meant something different, the title Christian 2,000 years ago meant something completely different than it does today. 2,000 years ago, the, the, the term Christian was actually like a derogatory slur, most of the time thrown at somebody. It wasn't like a title for your faith. So we hear this in Peter's language. He's saying, if you're gonna suffer as a Christian, lean into that name, like own it, own the shamefulness that most people are gonna feel about that name. And as you do that, you lean in and you glorify God. And I think this is super relevant for us today as well, increasingly in our culture. It's the idea that when you live out your faith, like Jesus calls us to to do, it will be a shameful thing in the eyes of many just regardless. If you are like the kindest, most overflowing, loving person in the world, still your faith in the eyes of many people in our culture will be seen as a shameful thing. You will endure some scorn because of it. And Peter's words here are, when that happens, once again, when that happens, own it. Like own the shame of it. Don't shrink back, but own it and lean into it. And as you do that, you glorify God. So those are three of the exhortations that I think Peter has for us and how we take up this mindset. Hey, expect it, it's coming your way. Two, rejoice in the midst of it. And then three, like don't, don't get bogged down in the shame of it, but own that moniker and live through it and it brings glory to God. So that's that first piece that Peter is asking us to take up, take up this new mindset, this way of thinking. I said there was this second piece where he's gonna caution us about something. Um, and, and I think it's this, Peter wants us to start seeing sin as a barrier to intimacy with God and with others. Sin as a barrier to intimacy with God and others. And I think we see this in verse seven and eight. So let's look at that again. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's the piece I want us to hold on to, for the sake of your prayers. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the third time in like a chapter and a half that we have seen Peter bring up this idea of prayers being hindered, which is kind of weird to us, so let's look at it again. Uh, jump back to three seven. I forgot to tell you, I'm gonna have you guys be like looking back and forth a lot, so disclaimer, way too late. Um, Verse seven of chapter three, Peter's talking to husbands, telling them, hey, how do do you love your wife? He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and here's the piece, so that your prayers might not be hindered. A couple lines down, um, Peter is quoting Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12, and he, he, says the same idea. It says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And here's the piece again. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's the same idea of God's connection being hindered. And once again here, he says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter keeps setting this fact in front of us to deal with, saying, if you live in these certain ways, if you keep doing these certain behaviors, your prayers will be hindered before God. He's not listening to you in the same way that he was. If you keep doing these things. And I think, if you're like me, we have a hard time, like, dealing with that, like dealing with Peter's words here? Because the way I think of it is like this. I know that for me to be a Christian, it means that my sins are covered over by Jesus, right? They're dealt with, they're paid for, they're done. It's like, I know that about sin, but I also know that there's this like lingering junk in my heart and in my life. They're like these things, these behaviors that I don't like, that I keep on doing. And those are like slow in leaving. And so when I hear Peter saying like, hey, you're, if you keep doing these things, God is not going to be listening to you. And the way it immediately comes across to me is like, almost like this new type of legalism where Peter is like, Peter, are you really saying that if I like, still am struggling with sin, that God's not listening to me? Like, Isn't that what we were saved from? Like, isn't that what the gospel is? So that, that's, that's where it gets murky for us, I think. And maybe it's not, maybe it's crystal clear to you. But I think the way that we start to reclaim this is by starting to see sin in the way that the Bible portrays sin from start to finish and get a better grasp of that. So my default framework when I think of sin is almost more of a pass-fail report card type reality, right, maybe you're like that. It's almost like I get up in the morning and the day is laid out before me, and right in front of me is the list of things that I'm supposed to do and the list of things that I know I'm supposed to stay away from, right? And at the end of the day, like how close God and I are, are dependent is dependent upon how well I did at that. Like, did I check the boxes off on the do's? Did I keep a pretty clean sheet in the don'ts? And God at the end of the day looks at it and he's like, okay, if you get anything above a B, we're cool, and anything below, we're gonna have to do some remedial work and you and I, not so great right now. Like that tends to be my default framework. It's just pass, fail. Um, and maybe that's not your case, but... Um, Yeah, that's just how it is for me. Maybe that resonates with you. I think in reality, the biblical portrait of sin is most fundamentally one of distance and separation rather than pass and fail, although that is definitely in there. So that when you and I sin, when you and I have this stuff in our lives, it creates a unseen and intangible and yet a very real rift in creation that has to be dealt with in some capacity. I don't think we like think of the effects of this very frequently. And to keep like to get more in touch with this, I think we have to go back to like page one of the Bible and, and see what purpose man was created for in the very first place. And if we do that, that's a story that we're all pretty familiar with. We're gonna see that man was made and placed in the Garden of Eden to be an image-bearer of God, right? Man is made His role is, hey, you are going to rule over and steward my creation. As you look to me, you're going to rule over and steward my creation. And as you do that, it's going to image my character forth on creation itself. And he looks at it and he says, you know, but it's not good that what this man should be alone. He he needs to have another helper, a helper fit for him. And so he makes the woman and they are then in this perfect intimacy imaging that before between one another. So we see man being made with his sole purpose being in relationship, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and as he lives into this, it displays the glory of God on creation. So that's why we're made. It goes really bad in Genesis chapter three, right? Keep letting him be the one who sets the definition of good and evil, or are you going to take that opportunity for yourself and be that role in your own lives. And we know what happens, they take the fruit, sin enters in, fractures stuff. But the thing I want us to pay attention in the context of this is what is the immediate picture in that story that is given of sin's infiltration into the creation? If we look, we'll see Adam and Eve who were once naked and unashamed between one another are immediately filled with a conscious self-awareness of their nakedness before one another, and they don't like it. They cover themselves. They hide themselves from one another. And beyond that, they hide in this portion of the garden as God is walking in the garden. They hide themselves. So where there was once a nearness and an intimate knowledge between all of the man and all of the woman, there is now separation and hiding. That's the picture of the outworking. And then God comes down, pronounces judgment on it, and once again, what's the picture? Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They are sent away from the presence of God. It's this picture of separation and distance. So how does this change how we read Peter here and think of this concept in our own lives? And I think it's this, Peter wants us to start seeing and thinking of sin in our own hearts and lives in this way. Like sin is not just something that you do and God is like checking it as as like this failure in your column that he's got of your report card up in the sky, but it is this thing that is causing this deep separation and barrier between you and he, and between you and the people that you love around you. And and in the context of 1 Peter, he's saying, when suffering comes, you are going to need all the more to press into God and to press into loving one another. You have to do it, that is like the essential piece. And when you leave this junk in your heart, when you have that one thing in your life that you know is bad and you refuse to give it to God, there is a very real rift in creation between you and he. It's like there's the, this river of relationship flowing back and forth. And whenever you keep that stuff, you are heaping stones in that river. And so the, the, the river is still there, the flow is still there, but the more you heap in there and the more you keep in there, it starts to hinder it. If you do it enough, I mean, it's just barely a trickle. So that's the language, that's how he wants us to start thinking of this. So be, be careful, like think of sin and stuff in your life this way. And I think it, it gets practical in verse seven of chapter three when he's talking to the husbands. I think this is pretty easy for us to understand. He's saying, husband, do not think that God is going to be cool with hearing your prayers if you are mistreating one of his daughters. Do not think that that is the case. Like, if you are being harsh with her, if you are not treating her as the co-heir of grace that she is, you and God are not cool in one sense, okay? Like, there is something there that needs to be dealt with. So that's Peter's language right there, I think this is pretty intuitive for us to grasp on a person-to-person level. Like if Josh and I have some beef between us, he and I are not getting into like very deep levels of intimacy with our conversation, right? Like we all kind of get that. Peter's asking us to start thinking of God in the same way. You need to be in relationship with God. You need to press in and have that intimacy. But when you keep this stuff in your life, you're robbing yourself of all shot of that. It's Peter's second point. I know that was kind of long, apologies, but I'm super passionate about it. Um, anyways, on. so that's Peter's thing that he's gonna warn us about, okay? So he's like, hey, take this up, watch out for this. This is, a, this is like a, a thing that could cost you. And then like I said, at the very end, he's gonna, he's gonna fill, finish it out with this last identity piece. And we see this at the very end. We're almost done, guys. This will be really quick. In, in verse 19, let's check this out. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. It's like Peter's saying like, okay, I've got my first part and my second part. Okay, and if I'm, uh, if I'm reading Peter and I'm thinking, Okay, what if I'm doing that? Like what if I really am like taking up the mind of Christ and I'm thinking that way about my situation and my suffering? And what if I really am like getting all of this stuff that is hindering he and I out of my life? Like what if I am doing both of those things and it is still really hard and really difficult and this suffering is still very present in my life and the pain is deeper than I ever thought it was going to be? What if that's the case? I think this is why Peter comes in at the very end um, and says, entrust yourself to a faithful creator. The thing that stood out to me was the fact that he uses the word creator right here. It jumps out like a sore thumb. This is one of three times in the entire New Testament that this title for God is used. One of three times, what blew my mind. I thought there was gonna be like, God being called creator would have happened like hundreds of times, three times in the entire New Testament. So why does he use it here? And I think it's as simple as this, that when things get really tough and you are still walking with God and and crushing the game as far as you know, when it still gets really tough, God wants you to know that he made you. Like, he's your creator. Like, he is so intimately involved in the making of you, and that's the piece that you need to rest in when it is still really hard. It's almost like the language of Psalm 139 right here, which is the one that we all probably know as, like, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, I praise you. And I want us to to think about and dwell on some of the other language of this in the context of what Peter's asking us to do. This is David in Psalm 139. He says, talking about God. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes, same thing, God's eyes, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's this language of intimacy, and I think where it comes to bear is this. When things are bad, when your days of suffering just keep going on and you've been doing all those other things, God wants you to be intimately aware with the fact that he made you and so nearly involved and that these days that he is bringing into your life are ones that he prepared beforehand for you, that he is now bringing into your life and in it he is working something in you that he would not otherwise. And it is for your joy and for his good. So the call of First Peter right at the end, that last identity piece that he wants to remind us of is remember whose you are. Remember the intimacy and the creative control of the one who made you and loves you and rest in that. And the, the cool piece at the very end, he says, while doing good. So we rest in this and we just keep living into what he has called us to. It's not like when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. Josh quotes that quite a bit. It's the same thing. It's like when it's still tough, rest in God's intimate love for you and keep living into what he has called you to do. So that's that last piece of identity and that's, that's it. We have finally come to the end. of this sermon. I apologize if that was longer than you expected, but um, I've been so excited to dig into this and to bring this before you guys. I hope it meant something to you this morning. We are gonna transition to communion as a family. And I don't know if... The, okay, there may or may not be two questions for you to dwell on. <laughs> Maybe instead of the questions, we do the slide, the colorful slide, because... It's just, people just need to enjoy that. Hey, there it is. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was a co-effort between Josh and I. Um, so here's a couple questions. As we were going to, to communion together, grab it and come back. And I would, I would encourage you to just sit and reflect with some of these things about like coming out of this teaching and what are some of the areas of my life where I am like serving my feelings ra- rather than bringing to my feelings and taking up the mind of Christ? Like what are some areas that I'm doing that? And talking about that intimacy language, what are some of the stones that I continually cast into or leave in the river of my intimacy with God and with others? So I hope these are helpful. I hope these maybe start to stir and and dig something up in your heart. And I don't know the exact flow right now, but I think I'm gonna call you guys to, um, we're all gonna stand together Come in the center aisle, grab communion at the corners of the room, and then make your way back on the outside. Consider these, and then Jared and the team are going to come back up and finish us out in worship.